Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hello and welcome to The Parenthood. For me, the COVID pandemic has taught me that in spite of my admiration of science, science doesn't always get it right. Scientific modelling often doesn't end up being an accurate predictor of what might happen and what will happen. And certainly without a delicate understanding of the nuance of human behaviour and needs, it doesn't always give us good solutions. So it makes sense that science wouldn't necessarily give you a good idea on how to parent. And yet my guest today believes that by taking evidence-based information and applying it to the unique child in front of you, you can work out what's really happening with your family. Dr. Emma Byrne is a scientist, journalist, public speaker and mother. She says that science can help us parents because science isn't a product, a neat set of correlations and laws. Science is a process based on observations, curiosity and openness. It also involves a lot of hope and resilience that this experiment, this setup, this attempt will finally be the one that demystifies things. Emma, thank you so much uh, for joining me today. Uh, It's a real pleasure to have you. And it's been a real pleasure actually to to read your book. Um, What struck me is kind of when I when I first started reading it is that science to many feels like something that's done by scientists in labs with fancy equipment and endless time and serious brains. And these aren't necessarily things that uh, mothers or parents particularly have to hand. So how can science help us understand our children? Yeah, so science, as you mentioned earlier, is a process of trial and error. And parenting, when we take off that pressure to be perfect and not deliberately go out to cause errors, obviously, but be aware of the fact that we're going to learn things through experience. Um, We can become better parents. Science teaches you, the process of doing science anyway, teaches you to basically be resilient in the face of a lot of failed experiments and to make meticulous notes and pay very close attention to what's actually going on rather than what you hoped might go on. Um, And I found when I first became a parent, I was staggeringly overwhelmed by the fact that my daughter didn't look entirely like the little flashcards we've been given in the NCT class of, you know, happy people yomping through the countryside with a contented baby just popping a boob out of the dungaree amid the bluebells. That just that wasn't happening for me. Um, the broken sleep, the evident distress that my daughter was in, yeah, this all broke me. It broke my spirit. I, I wound up, thankfully, with a, uh, a postnatal depression diagnosis in pretty good order. But what I didn't get was anyone saying, well, let's see what's going on with your daughter. And so I just returned to the training that I'd had as a scientist, which was to just watch what was going on with her. 
And as I mentioned in the book, between my husband and I, both with the same observational training, um, after about three or four days of meticulous notes of what was actually happening around feeding times, suddenly realised that everything that was going on was consistent with the diagnosis of gastric reflux, which nobody would have suggested. It was all, you know, have you tried being less stressed about the fact that your baby's crying? Um, <laughs> I I really could not bring myself to be not stressed about her distress. Um, and well, so instead... Well say if it's not your baby, isn't it? Well, well that's right. And it's, it's one of those things that I think we have got an idea that there is an ideal way of parenting and it includes things like solo sleeping sleeping for eight hours exclusively breastfeeding never letting them have a tablet uh, always making them wait for their pudding before you know eat their main course first but when you look at the research from around the world it shows that all of these things are phenomenally unnatural or certainly unusual um even as far back as the Bronze Age, we've been combination feeding our children uh, and people have been taking it in turns to care for the child in the family. It's not been a mother baby dyad throughout most of human history. So we have this beautifully, it's the image on the front of the nappy boxes, you know, the nappy packets or the wipes packets of, you know, this beaming child looking up at an adoring and yet still somehow entirely put together mother and everybody's happy and everybody's calm and everybody knows that it's crap but they only know it's crap after about three or four months of being a parent the first time around is terrifying you're right and actually you say that sometimes it's only by the time the fourth child is born that they're like <laughs> oh it's just total rubbish in the meantime <laughs> we're just constantly trying to emulate this sort of you know notion of perfection which is just absolutely impossible yeah. And in terms of um, uh, what parents can learn from from the scientists, what what does a scientist have that a mother could emulate? Because it's not just about mm. interpreting the information. It's, you know, the skills as well. Yeah, it is that curiosity, first and foremost, the idea that if you have something going on with your child that is either worrying you or causing you distress or just seems different to how you expected your child to be because of what it says in the books or because of how a previous child had been the most important question you can ask is why what's going on with this child at this time in these circumstances and that applies to everything from not sleeping to having tantrums to teenage surliness and sometimes the answer is actually this behavior is really bloody common, particularly things like when teenagers suddenly become night owls. There's some fantastic stuff in the research about what happens to teenage brains in particular and how their understanding of uh, essentially the length of the day changes. Certain processes change in the brain that does make them into night owls. Or sometimes it's just something very specific to do with your child. Perhaps there's something going on at school that you'd like them to talk to you about, but as we all know, just sort of sitting there going, what's going on? What's up? Doesn't tend to work. So finding these sort of more experimental, sometimes oblique, almost always playful ways of reconnecting with your subject, in this case, your kid, being driven by curiosity rather than a fear of failure, turning down that sort of sense of panic of I haven't got it right yet and turning up the I wonder what happens if I do this. These are all things that can help you get through the most difficult moments of parenting. And as with parenting and science, when you get to that moment where there is a, 
a revelation. I never realised that, you know, you thought that, like my daughter is terrified of Paddington. She won't read the book Paddington because she saw the um, the trailer for the movie. There was something in it that scared her. And the teacher at school rang me up and said, you know, I, I said we'd read Paddington and Rosetta burst into tears and I have no idea why. And it was getting to the bottom of it and finding out what it was. And it was Paddington getting in trouble for flooding the bathroom. This is something that, you know, she thinks is a terrible thing to have happened and what's nothing to do with him, which is a shame because I think Ben Wishaw is delightful. But uh, yeah, so th- that sort of thing, like that in a class of 30 kids, mine is the only one that has a phobia of Paddington. But it took a bit to get to the bottom of that. And in the class of 30 kids, Kids, your kid is going to be the only one that does something completely idiosyncratic. And as a parent, you are probably the only person who's going to be able to figure out why that is. Mm, and I think, we you know, we grow up, you know, thinking well, as soon as they become verbal, we'll just ask them the questions and they'll give us straightforward answers. And of course, that just isn't the case. It's a, it's a challenge, isn't it? It doesn't even work on adults. I mean, it doesn't even work on myself sometimes this morning. So you're thinking, I just feel a little bit out of sorts today. And I don't know what, what's what's going on with me. And some of the strategies that we use for ourselves that we learn through things like mindfulness, there's some really nice neuroscientific evidence for what happens when we practice things like mindfulness yeah. and something called vagal tone in the body, which is how how quickly we can resolve our physiological responses to stress all of these things can really help us understand ourselves as well as our kids. There's some gorgeous experiments in there about the benefits of playing cooperative games or of thinking about things that you're grateful for or spending some time just feeling protected and safe and nurtured. All of these things make it easier for you and your children to simply put not freak out you know not become so overwhelmed by stress that you know in your case you completely lose your rag or in their case they just have a complete tantrum although the dividing line between the two is is hard to draw sometimes it is and why do you think it is that uh, parenting manuals get it wrong so much because i think there are obviously so many parenting manuals out there um and yet very often you sort of think oh my god i'm going to buy this book it's going to be the answer to all my problems and then it's not and actually very often end up feeling kind of more guilty about failing so spectacularly at something that really should be coming to us naturally yeah I think those those books sell because they they promise an answer which they can't deliver because they're written for I talk in in the book about the idea of a spherical baby in a vacuum which is a horrifying image but this idea in physics is that if you take away all of the context you put something in a vacuum you take away all of the complexity you make it just a a simple sphere then Mm. you can completely understand what's going on Mm. and all of these books assume a spherical baby in a vacuum and they're either based on experiments that have been done with a very small group of children in a lab somewhere so the marshmallow test was a very small group of children all of whose parents worked at Stanford University and all of whom were in a controlled situation when offered a marshmallow. This is not what's going on with your kid when they're, you know, demanding some chocolate before dinner. They are not sitting there going, well, you'll have a higher IQ if you can resist that and have more chocolate. It's just not going to work because that's not what's happening in the experiment. Or quite often, if they're somewhat more anecdotal, it's like having a member of the extended family that's going, well, when I raised my kid, when I raised my little Duncan, you know, this is what worked for him. I just, you know, when he, whenever he wouldn't sleep, I just bounce him up and down. And it's like, that's, that's fine. That worked for Duncan. I'll try that. 
But when it doesn't work for your kid, you haven't failed. It's just that advice wasn't applicable to your child. Um, There are as many ways of raising a child as there are children, possibly more. Um, So, yeah, I would say those books, we we looked at them because we go, just tell me what to do. Please tell me what to do. I'm I'm out of ideas. I'm out of hope. I don't know what to do. And particularly when they're pre-verbal and you can't even begin to glean what might be what's going on. Um, Yeah, those books, I think, fill the void that's left by armies of well-meaning older siblings or aunts and uncles who in previous times would have been going, oh, he looks a bit cold. No, he doesn't. He looks a bit warm. And you sort of learn to discount any any advice that just doesn't quite seem to fit with your kid. I think the worst parenting manual to have is just one parenting manual. Yeah, absolutely. I know when I often talk about sort of routines when I teach my antenatal classes and I always say, just get a load of books. They kind of say the same thing, but with a Mm. little bit of elasticity and it just gives you a broad idea of that sort of loose idea of going, you know, adapting to your, to your baby and recognizing them as an individual from, from the moment they're born. Yeah, um, some of the international research, so, so much research in development and in psychology is done on populations that are sometimes called weird, uh, which means Western, educated, industrialised, rich and democratic nations. And so we have this idea of what's sort of normal, particularly in the United, Stra- the United States, the United Kingdom, Australia, a um, few of the other European nations, quite a lot of research out of Japan but as soon as you move beyond that and look at what anthropologists have discovered in cultures all around the world throughout Africa in the Pacific Islands so much of what we do is really unusual in industrialized nations and it is because we are industrialized nations where people have moved away from where they grew up in order to to do work our work is concentrated in towns and cities and about 50% of us are likely to have moved in the year before becoming a parent which is hugely disruptive um it's also around the idea of an eight hour ha I wish an eight hour working day um but this idea that you would compartmentalize your time into here is when you belong to your boss and here is when you do everything else and here is where you're allowed to sleep which is not how most of us have slept throughout history And so we're forcing our families to fit into this sort of post-industrial mode, particularly in an era when pressures on housing and wages and just our routines vis-a-vis our bosses or our clients, whether that's you're a delivery driver who has just got to take the next gig or you're a freelancer who then, you know, just not answer the client's email in the middle of the night to, you know, someone working in an office whose boss just doesn't seem to understand that you have kids. Mm. All of those pressures are so antithetical to the way that we've raised kids which is everybody sort of being responsive whenever the kid needs you everyone giving a hand whoever's nearest to the kid is the person taking care of the kid and quite often it's another slightly older kid all of those things meant that children got so much more attention and so much more variety and these are things that we're not able to give them so it's no wonder we get horribly stressed Yeah, I guess it's never been harder, has it, for us? That's right. And the underfunding of childcare in this country. I mean, there are many people for whom, you know, staying at home with their kids for a protracted period of time works and they're able to be 
all of the things that their kid wants and they can engage them in conversation and give them this broad and stimulating diet of activities particularly if there are other children around to play with but for a lot of children the best start in getting a social education and in developing the linguistic skills and in learning about you know the emotional states of others not to mention things like phonics and maths and singing twinkle twinkle little star a local good quality nursery is somewhat of a replacement for for the village that we've essentially lost mm-hmm. and the fact that particularly in deprived communities childcare providers have been utterly killed off by the pandemic I was going to say much worse much much worse (laughs) word there but what has happened to childcare provision particularly in deprived communities I think is going to be a huge challenge for kids over the next sort of five to ten years as we try to make up what has happened during this pandemic and the the lack of socialization and the the lack of mixing with other and slightly older children yeah And so in terms of, you know, one of the things that I think parents struggle with the most, especially in the early days, is getting their children to sleep. Hmm. Um, I remember teaching an antenatal class and one of the ladies said, if your baby sleeps all day, why are new mothers so sleep deprived? And I just looked at her and thought, just you wait. And, And obviously, from an evolutionary point of view, we know that sleep is really important. And the more we understand about our brains, the more we understand that sleep is is really important. So why is it that babies find sleep so difficult? And what is, how can science help us to understand what is sort of normal and not normal and make us feel less guilty? Yeah, I mean, the main thing with both sleep and eating is what is normal is hugely varied, much more varied than you'd think. What is troubling is anything that causes your child to become unwell. Um, If they're not actively unwell, most sleep disturbances can most uh, most properly be called sleep annoyances. Um, we, as I said, we didn't grow up in this wonderful post-industrial, you only have two parents at home looking after this one child. You know, if you're lucky, you have two parents at home looking after this one child and you have to get your sleep during this eight-hour block that is allocated for sleep because the rest of the time the boss expects you to be wide awake and answering the emails. That's not how we evolved. And as babies have not evolved to take into account the needs of our, you know, work-focused uh, lifestyle, Babies have metabolic needs, particularly babies that are breastfed. They need to feed about every two to three hours. So you are going to be woken by a baby, particularly a breastfed baby, who's going to need to eat. They also have different brain structures, which means they fall asleep in a very different way to the way that adults do. We usually need, this is is the crowning irony, we need about two hours sleep to get to our first decent REM cycle of sleep. And REM cycles of sleep are essential. We absolutely need those more than we need the, the non-REM sleep. Because if you deprive people of sleep, they will fall into REM sleep faster. But babies fall instantly into REM sleep and then wake up fully refreshed after about 45 minutes. So the reason that parents are so sleep deprived is that their sleep cycles are too short for us to be able to get a decent length of sleep in so oh it's it's it, it is 
I'm sorry. It's just it's one of those things that when I found this out, it made so much sense. And I wish that someone had explained to me that the only way to get a decent amount of sleep as a caregiver, as a parent, is to make sure that someone else is awake for the four hours that you're going to get a block of sleep. And in the end, that's what my husband and I ended up doing with our very young baby is that we would essentially say, you know, tonight you're on tonight. I'm on. And that's fine because we are a dual parent household. But if you're on your own, it is phenomenally difficult. And the amount of support you say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Going to need in those early years until your child's sleep cycles start to look more like an adult's one because they don't sleep for the protracted um, amounts that we've trained ourselves as grown-ups to sleep and that's the other thing is that the eight-hour sleep night is purely artificial uh, throughout most of history and still throughout most of the world people just sort of fall asleep when they're tired be that day or night they tend to sleep more in the night but people will sleep in the day um, people tend to sleep depending on what their role is in a particular society. So teenagers tend to stay up later. Uh, older people tend to fall asleep earlier. I know I'm now at the guy, 30 feels like a really good bedtime. <laughs> so our sleep biology changes as we age. And when we lived in a society where we were living with multi-generational families and extended families, and we didn't have someone saying, well, no, between the hours of 8.30 and 6.30, you're supposed to look bright and alert, even if you're not, then life is a lot easier. And now it isn't. Now it's really bloody hard. Um, how, what impact does sleep deprivation have on us as parents? I mean, can, can, can you be killed by lack of sleep? You can't. And this is in the early 20th century. There was a Russian uh, physiologist, neurophysiologist, who kept dogs awake for, I think it was about a week before they, they just dropped dead. They can... Plenty of food, plenty of water, but a week without sleep was enough to make these dogs just drop dead. And that's when the moral panic about sleep began. It's like, if you're not getting enough sleep, you're essentially, you might as well be, you know, drinking bootleg liquor or smoking opium or something, whatever the other health panics were in the early 20th century. 
But the research in about the mid 20th century showed that there is a phenomenon experienced by pretty much all primates, quite a lot of mammals. It's surprisingly that dogs don't. And it's something called a micro sleep. And it's that moment where you know you've just not quite been present for something. You were following a conversation very intently. And now the topic seems to have jumped completely and you can't quite remember why. Chances are you just had about a two minute micro sleep and didn't even realise it. This happens so much to new parents. It is terrifying that new parents are allowed to drive, frankly. But our brains will drop us instantly into these micro sleeps rather than letting us die. Um, So we do have this phenomenon. But what that means is that when you are tired, you are very likely to not be paying attention. You're likely to have impaired judgment. You're likely to find things more challenging. You're likely to need to give yourself more time. Essentially, during that first few years of sleep interruptions as a new parent, things will be more difficult. And that sucks. Whether it's learning to nap, getting someone to give you a night off if you can, uh, finding ways of accommodation around your work. It's like, I'm going to work from home on Thursdays. I mean, the number of cheeky naps I've managed during the pandemic has been brilliant. Um, But whatever it takes to make sure that you are functional, um, because thriving when you have someone whose sleep cycle is has evolved to last for about three hours max and yours has evolved or at least you've trained yourself to need eight hours in a block that's just completely incompatible it's horrible and it is the worst thing about this sort of nuclear family setup that we have yeah exactly no no older siblings to to hand the baby to which you know would make it so much easier One of the things I loved when reading your book was your um, you talking about sort of understanding the world as our children see it and the things that we take for granted, but that they're sort of still getting their heads around. And it puts into so much clarity that, of course, they're going to be clumsy. I mean, just even the idea that they're always growing. So sort of perspective in accordance to size is obviously changing on a daily basis, even for a 14 year old. Yes. I mean, some of the results in that section made me laugh. There is one that actually made me laugh out loud in the in the British Library. I was reading this paper and there's this lovely diagram of what's called the swinging room. It's a fixed platform and the ceilings and walls actually move freely. And you put someone in that room and then you tilt the walls and the ceiling and their brain goes, oh, my eyes say I'm moving, but my ears and my muscles say that I'm not. And you, if you're an adult, you tend to sway a little bit as the, as the room seems to move towards you. You assume you're moving forward, so you try and tilt back a little to preserve yourself, but you don't tend to fall over. But they had this lovely drawing of just sort of stick figure, stick figure toddler, of, you know, sort of dotted stick figure toddler standing upright and then uh, fully blank line stick figure toddler lying on the floor because like about 80% of the toddlers they tried this on just face plant completely <laughs> instantly as soon as you swing the room and that's because they haven't started to use their ears yet and they certainly haven't started to use their their muscle feedback to do something called proprioception the understanding of where you are in space it takes a lot of experience of moving around under your own steam to get a sense of where your body is in space. You think about the first few years of predominantly being carried or pushed or maybe toddling short distances, 
until you get to the point of going, okay, I know roughly how my body's position changes over periods of from several seconds to several minutes as I'm moving, your brain just doesn't bother to do anything with the information and just uses input from your eyes to determine whether you are the right way up or upside down. Around the end of toddlerdom, all of a sudden the ears start kicking in with a, a bit of information about, oh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm swaying, I'm swaying, I'm in a car and I'm moving, which is exactly the time at which your toddler is also possibly going, I'm watching an iPad, my eyes don't think I'm moving at all, which is why that is tends to be the time that car sickness begins. Um, the messages between the eyes and the and the ears, the movement sensations in the ears, are completely at odds with one another. And your brain goes, "Oh my god, my, I'm not working anymore." I, I, these signals from my from from this part of the brain and that part of the brain that should be in agreement aren't. Something has damaged me. I've probably been poisoned. Quickly, let's throw up. <laughs> and so every time your child has a growth spurt, they have to recalibrate this relationship between eyes, ears, muscles, and so on. And so every time your child has a growth spurt, they're likely to be more clumsy and they're also likely to have a resurgence of their car sickness. Sorry. Uh, don't throw out the bath bags until at least, you know, they're old enough to drive themselves, frankly. Oh, um, I mean, but... I, I still get car sick. So um, there is some, I'm sure there's no hope for my children. But I loved also that experiment you talked about whereby children were playing in a sort of play area environment with little slides and things that in cars they were getting into. And then they were removed and they were replaced with much, much, much smaller cars. I mean, literally toy things. But they still all tried to get in them, even though they were like 30 centimetres. <laughs> that one, again, that just made me laugh so much. The, the images were very grainy because they were stills from a video. But again, I was sitting there in the British Library going, that is hilarious. So, yeah, the, the uh, red and yellow car that I think most parents have probably seen at a nursery um, that's sort of got quite a high top and the, and the yellow steering wheel. And it's, you know, sort of fixture of many, many many nurseries um the kids are given this to play with or a normal size chair or a normal size slide and as you say as soon as they are distracted these are swapped out for little ones and you would think that it would be so patently obvious that this car is no longer the same car that was there earlier but all of the cues of it's the right color it's the right shape it's still in the same room that I was playing with it in that all overrides any sense of scale and that's because our sense of scale is very personalized to our own sense of individual scale and if your sense of how big you are is changing week by week, month by month. Things like it's about an arm's reach away, it's about two paces away, it's a handful. Those are not meaningful measures. They change constantly. So kids have very little sense of scale, uh, which is hilarious. And and also very important to know so that we can be sympathetic to our children. But I know hilarious. when they sort of spilt something and you know, you're like, oh please, I guess, you know, if if we if if I imagine our plates and our tables and all the things around us were constantly changing size uh, unpredictably to us, I suppose we'd be the same, wouldn't we? We would. I mean, it is very much like Alice in Wonderland, you know, that idea that all right is not quite so instantaneous, but that things seem to have shrunk as they grow. Um, the paddling pool that they were gladly dive bombing in last summer, you get it out this summer and all of a sudden it's like, please don't jump into that. You will break your neck. <laughs> Just things that 
change so rapidly from their perspective. We're not used to having to deal with that degree of adaptation on a sort of week by week, month by month basis. The other thing that always has baffled me about children is their relationship with food and often what, how eating is such a battle. You know, I've, I definitely come from a household where I love food. I love tasting food. It's a real treat. I have a child who genuinely would be delighted if he could eat nothing. He doesn't seem to get hungry. He doesn't seem to enjoy the taste of food. And so the part of me feels so disappointed that he's missing out on this lovely thing, but also frustrated because we, you know, it's so important to eat a sort of relatively, well, enough to give us the fuel. Um, why, why are children so, it, it's kind of normal, isn't it, for children to be quite nonplussed about food? Absolutely. And it's one of those things like um, the enjoyment of f- food versus the fuel requirements for food is, is a really important thing to separate out when we're stressing about mealtimes. Because quite often what we are stressing about is the idea that our child is going to miss out either socially or culturally. How can We want to go to a nice restaurant, for goodness sakes, and have something that isn't breaded protein with extra carb. Can we just please do something nice? It's one of the great joys in life. It's like having a child who doesn't like music, you know, or, or, or books or something. You're missing out on this enormous wealth of cultural things. And what tends to happen is if, if they see that you're passionate about it, that you love this stuff, then eventually they'll come to be curious about it themselves in their own time. What studies prove is counterproductive is if you try and force them into trying things, then all that happens is they start to, you know, basically associate mealtimes with stress. If they see that you associate mealtimes with excitement and exploration and fun and indulgence, then, then they will eventually learn to emulate that. There are some signs that your child might be struggling with. It's called avoidant or restrictive food intake disorder or ARFID. Uh, And that's, you know, if they're basically losing weight or failing to thrive, um, if they if if this is nothing to do with, for example, a, a cultural practice. So if it's Ramadan and your kid is, you know, you see a child who's not having lunch, that's one thing. But if it's not and this kid never eats lunch, that might be something else. Um, if this person, you know, it, 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 there's a really good basically diagnostic list that I've reproduced in the book that says unless your child ticks these boxes, it's probably going to resolve of its own accord. And there's probably nothing to worry about. And just don't turn mealtimes into an emotional trauma. And if your child does tick those boxes, then there are really good ways that the medical profession can help. And sometimes that is as easy as basically saying, look, for the next few years, the most important thing is that your child has nutrition, hydration and the the nutrients, the vitamins that they need. And so they're going to be on a supplemented diet until whatever it is, either emotional, cognitive or physiological sorts itself out. And usually these things do tend to resolve by the teenage years. There is a a thing called neophobia that strikes almost every kid around the time they become toddlers. Uh, And it's a very sensible evolutionary adaptation. It's basically, oh, I can walk now. I could potentially eat absolutely everything. But some of this stuff might be poisonous. Therefore, I shall eat nothing. (laughs) Because the babies that did learn to walk and then promptly proceed to eat everything didn't tend to survive long enough to, to have offspring in the main. So that neophobia strikes kids with varying degrees. And you might just have a child who is extremely concerned about and sensitive to tastes and textures and just 
don't want the stress of trying something new. And with them, a gently, gently approach is far more productive than just sort of sitting there going, you will eat. There is a paper in there that's a study that somebody did. And the title of the study is called You Will Eat All of That. And it talks to adults about their memories of being forced to eat things as children and whether or not they can face that food as adults. And unsurprisingly, if it's been this battle at home, you largely don't ever go, hmm, I'd love to have broccoli in a restaurant. It so reminds me of, you know, arguing with my mum. So, yeah, it's hard because emotionally we're going, please eat. It's my way of showing that I love you and nurture you and making sure that you're strong and that you can partake in this social ritual. And it's so important. But what's more important is their emotional well-being. Yeah, I mean, and also they have, one thing you said in the book is that they do actually have significantly more taste buds than us so they're much more sensitive to taste and they're also much more aware of texture aren't they that's correct yeah i mean even things like the number of bitter receptors in a child's mouth is is hugely higher than ours and that's because we need bitter receptors in order to spot things that might be toxic and adults tend to only really enjoy bitter flavors in things that have some kind of fringe benefit be that alcohol or caffeine <laughs> um oh god caffeine yes uh, so we learn to tolerate bitterness rather than enjoying it but because then we don't notice the present but less intense bitterness in things like broccoli and cabbage and so on, we forget that those things ever seemed unpalatable. And what about um, babies in utero? Because they obviously are drinking the amniotic fluid. Do, Do different people's amniotic fluids taste different? Are they aware of the specific taste of their own maternal amniotic fluid? They are. And that is, oh, again, some of the most delightful studies in there. There's um, a test that you can do even on very, very young newborns, which is to place a vial of either their mother's amniotic fluid or a stranger's amniotic fluid next to them. And they will turn consistently towards their mother's amniotic fluid. There are things like metabolites and the things that are generally in your diet that tend to linger throughout your entire scent and some of it is likely you know biological hormonal you know these are things that your child has learned to associate with the positive feeling of being with you there are also flavors that we ingest things like garlic if you give random strangers well not random strangers volunteers you can't just go up to people on the street and do this be very unethical but if you give volunteers two very small vials about half a teaspoon a piece of Uh, amniotic fluid of a woman who swallowed a garlic capsule versus amniotic fluid of a woman who hasn't, who swallowed a um, a placebo, they can tell which one had the garlic. Um, That is how strong that that scent is. And so, as you say, our children, our babies in utero are not only swallowing, they're also inhaling the fluid that surrounds them. And this is one of the, the things that astounded me the most about our sense of taste The receptors that we think of as being taste receptors and smell receptors, they are what are called chemoreceptors. They they can tell that chemicals are present and they don't just exist in that sort of very localised region of your head. They're throughout your entire body and they act as kind of signalling systems that if you smell something that is you know, sweet or has the terpenes that you get from citrus fruits, if you can uh, taste something salty, your body instantly gears up to start making the very proteins and enzymes that will be needed to digest that particular thing that you're eating. 
And that fantastic set of signals is being trained from while the baby is in utero to determine you know, what is likely to be a safe diet in the place where you're going to be born. I, I just I love how how adaptable humanity is. And we start training your kids from even before they're born, both in terms of what they're going to eat and also in terms of the language that they're going to hear. These two experiences in the womb, what we're eating and the rhythms of how we speak give them so much learning from about 30 weeks onwards. They're starting to prepare themselves to live in this very localised situation that we're bringing them into. It's amazing, isn't it? It really is extraordinary. Well, Emma, this has been such a great chat. I've enjoyed so much. Um, You've done the most extraordinary research and you're so good at putting it into sort of layman's terms. And it almost sounds like you're telling our stories rather than you know, reporting the research on these uh, highly advanced scientific papers that you've been scouring. Um, Emma's book, How to Build a Human, What Science Knows About Childhood, is um, out now by Emma Byrne. It's available from all good bookshops. Um, Emma, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a real pleasure to chat. Thank you so much. It's been great being here. And thank you all for downloading this episode of The Parenthood. Uh, you can subscribe, rate, review us, whatever you found this podcast. And you can also follow me on Instagram. I'm at marina.vogel. But in the meantime, from Emma and me, thanks for listening. Goodbye.